Okay, last week we looked together at chapter 10 of uh, Luke's book, Acts. And if you were here, you recall that this chapter told of a, a really quite a pivotal time in the history of the early church when the, the gospel, the good news message kind of burst forth in a, in, a, in a place and the Holy Spirit fell with power on the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews who were living there. It tells of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Peter and of all people, a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius living in Caesarea. You remember that Cornelius, despite being a Roman centurion, was also a God-fearer. We're not told about how all that came about, just that he was a God-fearer. And uh, he, one day God spoke to Cornelius and told him that his way of life, his, his gifts to the poor, his compassion and his constant prayer were very pleasing to God. His lifestyle, his, his behaviour, it says, was a, a pleasing offering to the Lord. Well, the Lord then commanded Cornelius to find a man by the name of Peter, who was living not that far away by the sea in Joppa. At the same time, God spoke to Peter, who was living, just as the Lord had said, about 50 kilometres south at a place called uh, Caesarea, and, oh, sorry, south of Caesarea, at a place called Joppa. Now, Peter was living there with a man by the name of Simon. Now, Simon was a tanner, you remember that, who, which meant he you know, dealt with dead animals. And the very fact that Peter was living with a tanner meant there had been some shifts in the way he thought about things. And, of course, they lived by the sea because of the smell. And one day, Peter made time to go up on the roof to pray. It seems that was his practice. And as he did that, the Lord gave him a vision. Now, it was a pretty disturbing vision for Peter. The Lord showed him a sheet coming down from heaven full of all sorts of animals, small animals, wild animals, reptiles and birds, which under strict Jewish law were forbidden as a source of food. And amazingly, he looked into the sheet and a voice said to him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat them. Peter was horrified. No, Lord, he said. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish law forbids. And then the voice from heaven spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And this whole vision happened for Peter three times. And as Peter was thinking about what on earth all of this could mean, there was a knock at the door. And the three men sent by Cornelius, the Roman centurion, had found Peter and they wanted to know if he would return with them to visit Caesarea. Well, Peter agreed and the following day they left for the, the relatively short journey, still 50 kilometres, um, when Peter arrived at Cornelius' home. And there was a large group of people there gathered and Peter shared the good news about Jesus with them. And the text says, before Peter had finished speaking, the Holy Spirit unquestionably fell on all present, just as on the day of Pentecost. So that brings us up to chapter 11, which is where we are today. So let's read on together. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticised him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. So the news about what has happened was moving south from Caesarea across 
down to the region of Judea where some of the apostles and the, the other believers were. And it would appear that they rejoiced in this news that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit. Not so when the news reached Jerusalem. I want you to note that. Verse 2 says, But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles. You even ate with them. And then Peter told them exactly what had happened. So just bear that in mind. It seems that the closer you got to Jerusalem, the more opposition there was to the ideas that the idea that the gospel was good news for everyone, even for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. I won't go through it all again, but Peter repeatedly repeated exactly what had happened involving himself and Cornelius, the vision and the words from heaven. And after he told them all the details of what had happened, he finished by saying, this is verse 15, he says, As I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? And when the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. For a moment, let's just focus on Peter's words from verse 17. Who was I to stand in God's way? That was the realisation he came to. Who was I to stand in God's way? I think this is a very important part of what God was doing amongst these early believers. You see, he was teaching them to trust him and he was teaching them that they needed to stop standing in his way. You see, Israel had a whole history of standing in God's way. When you read their history, that's what they tended to do time and time again. They stood in the way of what God was doing. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel, when he foretold the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, when he foretold the coming of these events, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and everything that was happening, we read in Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. It's got that kind of standing in the way feel, doesn't it? Your heart of stone, your unmovable heart. And give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In other words, I will help you stop standing in the way, standing in my way, because I will change your hearts. Now Peter and the early church were learning to let God have his way. They were, they were living out the fulfilment of Ezekiel's prophecy. Now the Greek word translated here as standing in the way, it's actually one word and it's kolio. The Greek word is kolio and it means to hinder, to forbid, 
to deny or refuse one a thing. You know, with that fuller understanding of the, the Greek word, kolio, who am I to hinder God? Who am I to stand in the way of the Lord Almighty? Who am I to deny or refuse God? You know, I was really challenged when I read that. I started thinking about ways in which I might stand in the way of what God was doing. I wondered about how we as a church could stand in the way of what God was doing amongst us and through us. I started asking the question of the scriptures. I asked myself, where else do the scriptures speak about denying God or standing in the way of God? Let me share just a couple of these scriptures with you. Let's see what we might learn together about this standing in the way of God. See, the first comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Would well, we all agree that God's desire is that we would come to know him and that his will would fill our life? Would we agree with that? God wants to know us. That is one of the primary things about the revelation that has been given to us from the Bible is that God wants us to know him and he chooses to reveal himself to us as Abba Father. He wants us to know him and he deeply desires the best for us. And he knows that the best for us is when his will is what drives and directs our life. We know that from his word. So we stand in the way or we deny God's will for us when we refuse to deny ourselves. When we live self-centered, self-oriented, selfish lives, not only are we harming ourselves, but in a very real way. In effect, we are standing in the way of God, what, what God wants for us. God always wants the best for you. And one of the great paradoxes of life is that it's only in losing your life, giving yourself fully to the Lord, that you actually gain life, true life. I love the way C.S. Lewis, in his screw tape letters, has the, uh, the demon Wormwood. You know, do you know the story, like the screw tape letters? It's a classic old Christian book. You know, it's written from one kind of devil to another junior devil. And he talks about the enemy, which of course is God. And he says, ah, oh, the enemy, you know, God, he always takes with the left hand and gives back with the right. That's a lovely picture, isn't it? That God actually says, give me your life. Give me your life. Here it is back. <laughs> But it's only in doing that we actually give, we actually find life and we stop standing in his way. See, God always wants the best for you. And it is only as we lay our lives down before the Lord in full submission to him that he's able to, to bless us. That's why Paul wrote this to the Romans. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies 
as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I want you to notice that he doesn't talk about some ethereal, kind of out there, imagined, abstract idea. It is so rooted in reality, isn't it? He just says, I urge you to give your everyday body. It's just your everyday, old, beat up, unfit, whatever it is for us. Give that to God as a living sacrifice. And it's in doing that that we find life. So that's the first. We stand in the way of God when we live self-centred, Lives refusing to do as God's word commands us to do and to lay them down as living sacrifices. Secondly, we stand in the way of God when we refuse to honour God with our money. When we refuse to give back to the Lord what is his and what he demands of us. We read these, these words in Malachi 3.8. He says, the prophet says, will a man rob God? See, this is God's word through the prophet. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse. The whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may, there may be food in my house. And this is the only time in the Bible. You see, God says, in the other parts of Scripture, he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And yet here, this is the only time where God says, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. It's an amazing image, isn't it? He says, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. I'll even look after the lemons and make sure they don't fall off. I'll make sure the... You know, the, the grapes stay on the vine. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, as I've said this to you many times before, when we refuse to honour God with our finances, it's like shoving a cork into the stopper, like, like a stopper, just a cork into God's blessing. When we refuse to give, we deny or we stand in the way of God's blessing for us. So that's the second. We stand in the way of God when we refuse to tithe. A third revolved around the issue of unbelief. A great example of this is found in the book of Exodus. You know, when the, when the Lord delivered the people, his people, out of slavery in Egypt, and there's the promised land right there before them, and they sent a whole lot of spies into the promised land, you remember the story, and they come back, the spies come back with a report. And basically there's two of them. There's Joshua and Caleb who say, yes, we can take the land. It is a great land. And all the rest of them say, we haven't got a hope. These guys are enormous. We're like, we're like grasshoppers before them. They're enormous. You see, they don't believe God will be with them. And so what was... A trip of a, a journey of a few weeks became 40 years of walking in the wilderness. And God said, God said, every single man and woman in this generation will die in the desert, except the kids. 
who are stuck with you whether they like it or not. The kids, oh, and Joshua and Caleb. The rest of you, you'll die in the desert. And what was a few weeks, you see, that was God's will, became 40 years of going around and around and around in the wilderness. Do you see how unbelief, the unbelief that God was going to be with them and God would do as he said he would do, prevented, they stood in the way of God's will for his people. I wonder how many times that will happen for us. That God is calling you to step into a, maybe a new ministry role. He's calling you to do something great, yet because of fear, because of failure to trust that God will stand with you, you actually deny his will for your life and you miss out. Maybe you're unwell and your lack of faith in God actually prevents you from being healed. Now, please don't hear me saying that all sickness is due to unbelief. I'm not saying that at all. That is simply not true. But God does continue to heal. And I think there are times when our stubborn unbelief actually stands in the way of God. Maybe God has a new career path for you. But, but your, your lack of faith in God prevents you from stepping out and trusting him. So we stand in the way of God when we fail to believe him. We stand in the way of God when we are unfaithful to him. When we say we're going to do something and then we don't follow through with it. You know, I've been reading through a, a commentary on Ephesians and right in the middle of Ephesians, I mean, it literally is the middle Greek word. Like if you count all the Greek words, I didn't do this, I was told. You count all the Greek words, the middle word is this Greek word axios. Now we translate that word as worthy. And the sentence there basically is Paul is calling the church, he's saying that you would be worthy, that your life would be worthy of the call of God on your life. And you see that there's a, like a metaphor in that axis because axis was all about the axis around which the measure went. You see the weight. So if you wanted, if you wanted a, a pound of, of flour, it's just all this dust this power. How do you work it out? You have a pound of lead on one side and when you keep putting flour here, when they're in balance, this is worth that. They are worthy of one another. The axios, you see. So what Paul is saying is that you have received this wonderful call, the word of God, the call of God on your life. He says, live a life worthy of the call. And as I reflected on this, I thought, yep, when our action, our everyday, where the rubber meets the road, just in that kind of the grind of everyday life, when that doesn't match with the call, we're out of balance. And that prevents God's will. We stand in the way of God when our life doesn't actually reflect the call of God on us. We stand in the way of God when we allow habitual sin into our life. When we allow it in to continue after coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the great blessings of the Holy Spirit is that he actually convicts us of sin. 
You know, he, he speaks to us gently from within, not like the enemy that just accuses. The Holy Spirit convicts us in a gentle way of sin. And when our eyes are open, we say, yeah, that is wrong. I shouldn't do that. That's a habit in my life and I need to change that habit. But when we say no, when we have our eyes open, we say no, I'm going to keep doing that. We deny God. We stand in the way of God. We stand in the way of God when our actions don't line up with our words. Have a look at what Paul wrote to Titus about such people. These are tough words. He says, For there are many rebellious. You see, rebelling against the Spirit of God. There are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They claim to know God. But by their actions, they deny him. Do you see what he says? He goes, they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So this issue of standing in the way of God is a big deal, isn't it? It seems to me when I look at what the Bible has to say, it's a big deal. Those who claim to know God but deny him by their actions are unfit doing anything good that is strong language yet you see god was planning good works for you before the creation of the world that's god's will for your life that you would do good things and yet here it makes it very clear they are actually unfit for doing anything good in other words you have stopped what God wants to do in your life. You have stood in the way of God. See, the scriptures are full of passages relating to this, and I've only touched on a few here today. The point is that Peter and Cornelius and many others decided not to stand in the way of God when he was doing something in their midst which appeared strange or unexpected. In this case, filling and empowering the Gentiles with his Holy Spirit. And the fruit of that decision when they decided not to stand in his way, was awesome. And we will discover shortly that many Gentiles came to know Jesus. You know, I really pray that for each of us individually, that we would be so careful to make sure we don't stand in the way of God's will for our life. And that we would be constantly praying, Lord, less of me and more of you. Less of me and more of you. Let me not stand in your way. And that together we, the people of God in this place, Lakes Baptist Church, would ensure that, that there is nothing that might prevent the Lord from using us and that we would never stand in his way. That sins like conflict and, and disunity and gossip and criticism and spiritual abuse would never stand between God and his church. So let's read on from verse 19. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God but only to Jews. I want you to notice they didn't plan to go north. They were driven north from Jerusalem by persecution. You remember from the opening chapters of Acts that the Lord right at the beginning the Lord said you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea Samaria and to the ends of the earth but then if you read Acts chapter 2 
It was like they settled down to, oh, everything's just wonderful. People keep coming into the church. We're sharing everything in common. No one's in need. It's just awesome. No one's getting out of there. So the Lord brought a wave of persecution. Stephen was put to get death and they were kind of thrown out, in a sense, out of home base. Do you notice that Luke tells us that only they, they only shared the word of God with Jews? He said they still kind of weren't getting it. They shared the gospel with Jews living in this area. However, some of, some of them, it says, people from Cyprus and Cyrene, who undoubtedly had strong relational networks among the Gentiles, probably family members, work associates, etc. They, they, they were used by God to spread the good news. Verse 20 says, However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them. And a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. See, the power of the Lord was with them and their mission was a great success. A large number, that's what it says, a large number of Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. You know, effective mission? We are called, we are people with a mission. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you don't have a mission. That other guy does, but you don't. We are the called ones. We are called by the missional God who came to us to be like him. He came into our world and he sends us out to others, into their world. It says, it says effective mission here. I want you to notice it flowed from persecution. It flowed from persecution and then the willingness of these others to step into God's plan for them in their time and their place. That's very important. Take note of that. These people stepped into God's plan for them in their time. You can't do it in anyone else's time. It's your time and in their place. And when we look historically at how the gospel spread to the Gentile world, there were always these same ingredients. And it's good for us just to quickly go through and say, okay, what were the ingredients of effective mission? Because down through the centuries, it has always been the same. It is the same ingredients, the same mix. There was always sacrifice. That's the first ingredient. There was always sacrifice. Of course, it all started with the sacrifice of God's Son. But God always calls us to give up something, to walk away from our old life, to step into the life he has for us. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. What I'm calling you to is effective mission and it's going to cost. It's going to cost you something. So the question for you today, what is God calling you to sacrifice? What is God calling you to give up so that you might step into his future for you? My prayer is that the Holy Spirit might be just whispering that thing, whatever it is for you, that you might give up, that he says, I'm calling you to give up so that you won't stand in the way. You won't stand in what I want, the way of what I want to do for your life and in and through you. Ingredient number two, ingredient number two, there is always the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one bringing it all together. 
He's the one empowering, calling us, leading us on. Let me tell you, if the Holy Spirit's not doing it, it won't happen. It just, it, it just won't. Unless God builds the house, this is what the scriptures say, unless God builds the house, the builders labour in vain. Question for you today regarding this ingredient. What has the Holy Spirit been saying to you recently about your kingdom work? And let me tell you, if, you, if you're sitting here saying, I don't know, my challenge would be, well, you better start asking. You better start asking God, what are you calling me to do? What are you calling me to give up? And what is your Holy Spirit saying to me? You see, remember from Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If that is true, and surely God's work has to be true for us, God's word has to be true. God has planned great things for you, not just for some of us, but for all of us. What has the Holy Spirit been saying to you recently about your kingdom work? What is God's Spirit calling you to do? These are tough questions. The third is ingredient. Third ingredient is there is always faith. You know, when you read the, the Gospels, there is, there is only one thing which impressed Jesus. That was faith. The only time you see Jesus in the flesh go, wow, I haven't seen faith like this anywhere. <laughs> this Roman just says, Lord, I know about authority. I tell this guy to go and he goes. I tell that one to go there and he goes there. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. Don't come. You don't have to come to the house. You don't have to travel. You just speak, Jesus, and it'll happen. I understand about authority. Jesus goes, whoa, what faith. That's awesome, mate. The ingredient, the third ingredient is faith. And let me tell you, that always involves risk. Faith stroke risk. You see, as we step out in faith, we step out into the unknown with God by our side. And that doesn't necessarily mean we won't get hurt. You need to hear that. I have no doubt when Jesus hung on the cross, when the Father turned away from him because all sin was now placed on him, God couldn't even look at him and Jesus then is able to pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, from the Psalms. I have no doubt that as Jesus hung there on the cross dying, there was that sense of, well, I'm putting my faith in you. I really hope this is going to work. <laughs> I really hope that somehow I'm going to rise again. Because at the moment, I'm feeling like I'm dying. I'm feeling bad. There's risk, even for the Son of God. He's fully human. Fully human, fully God, but he's fully human. Whenever God calls us to do something, there is faith. You remember Abraham? 
one of the gods, the living God, calls to him and says, Abraham, I want you to head west. I'm going to give you a land. Walk through the desert, leave everything here, all your network, all of your wealth and everything, and head west. And it says, and he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's faith. It was risk. It was risk. The New Testament's full of stories of people who lived faith-filled lives. And they ended up dead. They ended up dead or in prison or being tortured for their faith. Why would I want to do that? Because you don't want to be a stopper in the will of God. See, God was by their side through all of that. And ultimately, nothing could separate them from the love of God. See, when God moves, he always seems to call us to step out in faith. I mean, that's certainly been true for Louise and I in recent weeks. It really has. When I told you we're leaving, I, you'll remember I said, we don't have jobs to go to. Well, praise God, two, weeks, I mean, sorry, two days after we did that, I said, Louise, it won't happen until we step out in faith. Two days later, she gets a phone call and there's this job. She gets the job. I don't know what God's got for me next, really. It's a step of faith. But I know that he always says, I want you to step out <laughs> into the darkness. You don't know the way ahead, but I do. So just trust me. It's the same for all of us. It really is. Question for you today. When was the last time... If ever, you risked in faith because you believed God was calling you to do something. If God calls us to a life of faith, when was the last time you exercised, you lived out your faith? You didn't just talk about it. You actually kind of lived it out. Ingredient four. Ingredient four is prayer. These events began with two men, Peter and Cornelius, spending significant time with God in prayer. Question for you today. You've got to be really honest. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Is prayer one of your daily habits or is it kept for times of crisis? Is prayer just talking to God? communing with God and you know sometimes people try to sound all spiritual by saying you know we shouldn't just ask God we should just declare his holiness and praise him honestly I think that's rubbish no no at the very core of it prayer is asking because it says we can do nothing but you think about how arrogant a little child would, would be if he says no I'm not asking you for a drink I'm not asking you for something to eat I'm not asking you to look after me. You go, that's stupid. You're two years old. You need me and it's very right and proper for you to ask because it speaks truth about our relationship. Prayer is asking at its core. What are we asking God for? Our daily bread. Is it a reflex action for us? In times of need, if you see a good, you know, wonderfully healthy, beautiful little kid, their reflex action as a little child is to turn, isn't it, for the protection of mum or dad? 
when they're hurt, when a little kid falls over and they graze their knee, he said, I want mummy, I want mummy. I just want mum. So is our reflex action prayer? Is our reflex action to turn to God? It should be. It should be. And we need to just be building that in. And I think that, that you, do, you learn that by bringing everything to God in prayer, as the old song says, every day. Everything, every little detail. Everything about your marriage, about your kids, about your grandkids, about your work. Blimey, God, God knows about every sparrow that falls to the ground. Jesus said, there's not one sparrow that falls to the ground that my father doesn't go, oh. He worries about you. He knows every little detail. You know, these are tough, challenging questions for us to ask ourselves. But prayer, you see, is where heaven and earth collide. And we kind of, that's where we live. When the kingdom of God and this world somehow meet. When things rub up against each other, we bring them to God in prayer. Lord, I don't understand how this is working. Help. Let's read on from verse 22. We'll finish with this passage. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Sent him up north. And when he arrived, he saw this evidence of God's blessing. He was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians, Christ's ones. You know, as I read these verses over and over during this, these last couple of weeks, I've been struck by the dynamic nature of kingdom life. See, it seems that people of the kingdom are always on the move with the Holy Spirit. People are scattered from Jerusalem all over the known world. God tells Cornelius to send people to Joppa to find Peter. God tells people to go with them to Caesarea. Peter, people from Cyprus and Cyrene decide to go to Antioch to preach to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. And the church in Jerusalem says Barnabas, sends Barnabas to Antioch. And when he gets to Antioch, Barnabas travels to Tarsus to find Saul. And then they travel back to Antioch for a year's teaching ministry. That's all just in a few verses. Kingdom people are always on the move. And in saying that, I'm not saying that we all have to be moving geographically from place to place at all. But there needs to be a dynamic to your faith journey. If I honestly asked you, what has God been doing? And you said, oh, God hasn't done anything in me for years but I keep coming to church. I keep sitting in that pew, the same pew, the same seat. Kingdom people are on the move. Tell us where God, I'm not going to ask you, but if I did ask you, would you be able to tell me? Tell me. Where is God leading you at the moment? What is God's plan for you in this time, your time, in this, your place? What is the great mover and shaker? The Holy Spirit. 
doing in you at this time. And let me ask you, do you really think? Do you really believe God doesn't have plans for you? Do you really think that God's plan for you is that you would just turn up on Sunday, sing a few songs, that you would listen to the message with a great deal of interest or disinterest, and then go home? Is that it? Let me tell you, this is your one and only life. This is. This is your one and only life. This is your time, and this is your place. You cannot answer the call of God to men and women living in Cyprus or Cyrene or Antioch or Jerusalem or Rome in the first century. You can't. You can read about what was recorded about them, but you cannot, you cannot answer their call. And they could not answer the call of God on those living in the central coast of New South Wales in the 21st century. This is our time, our place, and God's call on your life is uniquely yours. And my prayer is that we would not only discover, that we would not only discover what God is calling to you, calling you to, in this time and this place. And it, believe me, the vast majority of what God calls us to do is really kind of every day. Now look down, I see Lola sitting down there. And I think, I know that the call of God on Lola is that she just does wonderful ministry in the, the area where you live. You do, you do. Sorry, I don't want to embarrass Lola, but she does. She just does wonderful pastoral care with her neighbours and with other people and she drives them to doctor's visits and has a cup of tea and she does all these, these beautiful little things. That is God's call on her life. And I have no doubt that she's doing exactly what God is calling her to. It's not particularly spectacular, is it? But it probably is in a kingdom sense. So what is God calling you to? My prayer is not only that you would discern that, you would actually be able to say, I feel God's calling me to this. But that you would actually respond. And see, Abraham believed God, but he didn't just believe, he actually started heading west. <laughs> he actually stepped out and did it. So that is my prayer, that we would hear it, but we would also respond. Kind of put legs on it. Okay, let's pray. Lord, give us the courage to step out to actually step out and to put, put legs on the word. The word that we have planted in us. And as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, that we would live lives worthy of the calling. It's that simple. We have this magnificent call on our life. A, a call that is so enormous we can't even begin to get our head around what it means to be called to live abundant lives doing good works not just for 60 70 80 90 years but forever for eternity with you we can't even begin to imagine the magnificence of what you've called us to but I pray, Lord, we might get a glimpse. 
we might just begin to get a glimpse and that in faith we would step out and that our actual everyday lives would be worthy of that call. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.